You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Well, I hope you had a great new year. No matter how you celebrate it, every year you and I will stand at the precipice of a new year with new hopes and new opportunities, but also if you're thinking about it, with new fears, new worries new possible pains, and new questions. And where is God in all of that? Well, that's one of the reasons I chose to start the new year in a new series in the book of Ezekiel, because that's really kind of how the book is all about. Now, I'm sure that some of you have never dug into such a weighty, huge book, a prophetic book like the book of Ezekiel. Maybe you've thought about it and you've been intimidated by getting into it. And so maybe you start into it a little bit and give up halfway through. Others of you will be eager to dig into it because you know that it's a book of prophecy and it's about things like the rebuilding of the third temple and all that kind of jazz. And still there's others of you who know nothing about the book of Ezekiel and you're just happy to tag along for the ride. I'm glad you're here because I've done a lot of work in getting into this book. The fact, though, is is that Ezekiel is a hard book. So why did I pick it? Well, as your pastor, I strive to give you a kind of a well-rounded grasp of the whole Bible. The New Testament is awesome. It's great. The stories, the gospel of Jesus, the epistles, all very awesome. But if you want to get a good handle on the New Testament, on what Jesus accomplished in in the New Covenant, then you have to draw back on the Old Testament And so it's time for us to get back into the Old Testament this new year. A couple of years ago, we concluded a series on the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. In those books, we saw David conflicted in his relationship with Saul, who was the first king over Israel. Then we spent some time examining the character and the rule of Israel's second king, King David, a man after God's own heart. We saw how during his reign, David wanted to build this new dwelling place, a temple for the Lord his God. See, up until that time, the Lord's dwelling was the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the place that Israel gathered together and worshipped the Lord at during their wilderness wanderings after the Exodus for 40 years. And then they carried it into the promised land. And over the next 400 years, David is still meeting there with the people of God. He didn't think that it was right, though, that he, the king of Israel, should be living in a palace when the Lord was living or meeting in a tent. And so he vowed to make a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. He wanted to build a magnificent temple, fitting of the God of the universe. But Yahweh told him that he couldn't. Instead, Solomon, his son, would be the one who would build the temple. If you know the history at all, Solomon did succeed his father David, the king over Israel. And during his reign, we, as we read about in 1 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, Israel was a united, strong, and prosperous kingdom. He was a wise king, that Solomon, at least in the beginning. And then he did build the temple For the Lord, a magnificent temple. Listen to what Solomon said before the dedication. There are sermon notes for you when you came in. There's a little bit of a chart on the back for timelines so that you'll have that throughout the series. So hopefully you get one before you leave today. 
But this is 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 3 to 11. Listen to Solomon. This is before the dedication of the temple. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. For he, since, for he said, Since the day I brought my people out of Egypt... I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there, nor have I chosen anyone to be ruler over my people. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there, and I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, your own flesh and blood. He is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has, pro has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have placed the ark in which the covenant of the Lord that, made, that he made with the people of Israel. Well, that gives you a little bit of Israel's history in a nutshell until that time. And here's a bit of prophecy for you. You will need to know this as we go through, that Solomon himself uttered this during the dedication of the temple. Bump down to verse 36, 2 Chronicles 6, 36. When they, your people, verse 34, sin against you, for there is no doubt, for there is no one who does not sin, you will become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. If they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken... And pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen, and toward the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. These words are not just a what if. These are prophetic words from Solomon that project forward in time roughly around 300 years. See, before Solomon's reign concluded, he led the people into idolatry. And the result of such unfaithfulness was that after centuries of sin and idolatry, God would allow a foreign enemy to destroy the holy city of Jerusalem and its temple and then take his people into captivity to a far away land. You would think that knowing these details of his own prophecy and being such a wise king as Solomon was gifted to be, you'd think that he would have been wise enough to avoid such unfaithfulness. But while Solomon's reign started off good, Solomon began to take on many wives from other nations, which according to the law was forbidden, and they led him into idolatry. 
Upon his death, the kingdom was divided into two geopolitical parts. The northern part of the kingdom was called Israel. The capital was first Tirzah and then later became Samaria. And the southern part of the kingdom was called Judah. The capital was Jerusalem, always was, and a temple was therein. This is a map here up on the screen of the division. Israel in the north, say Israel in the north. Okay, then Judah in the south, say Judah in the south. Okay, so you have to know that. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Northern Israel constantly struggled and grew more and more unfaithful and wicked and never did have a good king. Since the temple of Jerusalem was in Judah now, the first king of Israel, northern kingdom, Jeroboam, Jeroboam established two alternate places to worship in the north so that the people of Israel, northern kingdom, would not have to go down to Judah to worship Yahweh. But something happened. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 28 to, 33, to 32. It says this, After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Been down that road before, haven't we? He said to the people, it is too much for you to go down, to go up to Jerusalem. It's always up to Jerusalem, even if you're up north of Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Jeroboam introduces or maybe reintroduces idolatry to Israel, northern kingdom, turning them away from Yahweh, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the one they had formed covenants with. God tried to keep the nation faithful. He kept sending prophets, prophets that you would know of, Elijah, Elijah, Hosea, Amos, to steer them back to himself, but Israel never returned back to him. So God exiled them into captivity by a nation, the nation of Assyria, in 722 B.C. And eventually, Israel just kind of got absorbed into Assyria, and she completely ceased to exist by around 720 B.C. In 612 B.C., Babylon conquers Assyria and becomes a dominant superpower throughout the Middle East. Judah, on the other hand, was the smaller of the two kingdoms after the division, some of Judah's kings turned out to be good, but eventually, one after another turned away from Yahweh. Like with Israel, God sent prophets to turn them back to himself, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Micah, or Zechariah, and Malachi. But Judah ignored their warnings, and they engaged in all kinds of idolatries themselves. Now, Yahweh didn't divorce Judah like he did with the northern kingdom of Israel, but he did send them into exile. Using the Babylonians to march into Jerusalem, they took Judah's king, Jehoiakim, and his officials and all the temple treasury all back to Babylon in 605 B.C. But that was only the first of three sieges upon Jerusalem before the city was actually destroyed along with its temple. Now, it was during the second siege in 597 B.C. that Ezekiel and, 18, and an 18-year-old king, Jehoiachin, and many other Jewish leaders were deported to Babylon. 
During the third phase of the, reign, or of the sieges in 586 B.C., that might be a number that you might remember, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon initiates its, his final attack on, on Jerusalem. This time, he not only loots, but he also burns and levels the holy city and its temple to the ground. Judah's final king, Zedekiah, is captured during this third siege, and his eyes are gouged out, and he and whoever is left in Jerusalem is taken to Babylon. Again, Ezekiel's deportation took place during the second siege, and that's when we have the opening of the book of Ezekiel. So let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. All right, you there? There's quite a bit of flipping to go around there. But we'll settle in Ezekiel here for a bit. Okay, you got it? In the 13th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. In the NIV, we read that Ezekiel claims that it was his 30th year. But just about every other English translation says it was in the 30th year. Okay? Just in the 30th year. That's the NIV kind of showing its preference in translating that this was Ezekiel's 30th year. Maybe his 30th birthday. The other option is that the 30th year is the marking of some other very important detail or event that we just know nothing about. We're not told. And so most commentators agree that Ezekiel was probably 30 years old when he was among the exiles by the Kebar River when he saw the heavens open and saw visions of God. And that's good enough for us. In verse 3, it mentions that Ezekiel is a priest. So he would have had a, a, a priestly command of the Torah. In other words, a really solid command of the Jewish scriptures. In other words, he, he was quite knowledgeable about God's law and covenants. And this becomes very important to us later in the series when we see Ezekiel do some pretty weird stuff. Especially things that seem to violate some of the laws of Torah for priests, like some of the rules of purity. We learn in Ezekiel 24, 18, we'll get there much later, that he was married. But that verse also informs us that God tells him that his wife is going to die by the hand of God. And God commanded him that he could not mourn for her. That's a little weird, hey? Sounds awful, but we'll get to that. From the start of Ezekiel's ministry to the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C., we get the idea through the book that Ezekiel is seen by the people as some kind of loner and a guy who does weird stuff. And Because of that, he becomes a local entertainment, local celebrity. Let's go to Ezekiel's house and see what weird thing he's doing today. Probably the most memorable part of the book of Ezekiel is Ezekiel's wheel. This is the first of his visions and probably the most misinterpreted. If you're a History Channel buff, any History Channel buffs here? Nobody wants to admit it. If you're a History Channel buff, maybe you've seen the odd episode of Ancient Aliens where you, they have these supposed UFO experts who claim that Ezekiel's vision here in chapter 1 is clearly a UFO. To see what 
what's really going on here in this vision, though. I, wanna, I want you to remember back to the series that we had in November, where we looked at how to study your Bible. The main thing I wanted you to remember from that series was that while the Bible was written for you, it was not written to you. It's a very important detail to remember in studying your Bible. In other words, when you read and study your Bible today, you have to read it like the people of the day that it was written to and how they would have received it. In the case of Ezekiel, you have to read it like a Jewish exile living in wicked, idolatrous Babylon. They were smart people. But they weren't 21st century people with all the accumulated knowledge and culture that we have today, like History Channel or YouTube or Roswell, New Mexico. These Israelites lived, though, in a supernatural world where everyone around them lived each and every day trying desperately to please and appease their God, especially at Akitu the annual Mesopotamian New Year's festivals. But Israel believed they were a chosen people of the ultimate God, at least they used to. Of all, God's, of all the gods, God was the most high. And they weren't pleasing him lately, and they knew that. Jerusalem used to be the center of Jewish worship, but now they're in Babylon. And Jerusalem is destroyed, and with it their most precious holy temple, the temple of Yahweh. That temple represented God's sacred space here on earth, but now it was gone. And that meant for them that God was now gone from their midst. He wasn't present. Not only that, but they are now over 500 miles as a crow flies from Jerusalem, exiled in idolatrous Babylon, which is located in what is now Iraq, along the Euphrates River. And so, they are now very, very distant from God, abandoned by God, out of their local hometown and space, and away from the temple because it's no more. And they're abandoned by God, they're feeling, and now they're political refugees. Babylon was immersed in the worship of many deities, Many adopted from the ancient Semitic peoples, like the Canaanites and the Sumerian and Assyrian cultures. Marduk was their primary deity. He was the god of heaven and earth and of nature and humanity. Under his reign, humans were created to bear the burdens so that gods could live in leisure. Hadad was the God who rode a chariot clouded by thunder and lightning. Biblical writers, when you read your Bible, they will refer to Hadad as the Baal. Remember Baal? Probably familiar with that name. So keep that in mind as we read the rest of the vision that was given to Ezekiel. Let's pick up in verse 4. I looked and saw a windstorm coming out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their, forms, their form was human. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on, the, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. 
Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the right side, it's probably just the perspective of which he could see, on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, and each had also the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering their bodies. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped up, sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. And as they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them. Because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapsus lazuli. And high above the th- on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there, from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Wow. That must have been quite the sight. I wish I would have enough time today to be able to get into all the different word pictures here that we see in Ezekiel's vision. I just won't. But Ezekiel's response is obviously very impressive for us and impactful. He says, when I saw it, I fell face down. I heard the voice of the one speaking. Remember that while you're reading and studying the vision like this, a vision like this, and and you have probably read it at some point, 
You have to read it like the people of the day would have received it. Because that's who it was written to. In Ezekiel's case, you would have to read it like, as I said earlier, a Jew exiled and living in idolatrous Babylon. That's why as you read this vision, you see Yahweh borrowing divine imagery that would have been familiar to the Jews as well as to the Babylonians around them, using imagery like this, like they would have used to depict their deities, especially Marduk and Baal. Here's some pictures from the famous German scholar, Othmar Kiel. These, this, he was a, a speci- his specialty was iconography in the ancient Near East. And these are some of the images surrounding some of the temples of the ancient Near East that were not Jewish. See some similarities? But there are also images here that were already Jewish divine imagery, like we see in the temple. And I'll get to that later. But also at Sinai. Let's go back to verse 4. Ezekiel says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an impressive cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. Ezekiel saw a windstorm. So that must mean that he saw an actual windstorm. But when he says things like the center of the fire looked like glowing metal, he means that that what he was looking at was not glowing metal, but looked like glowing metal. So this glowing metal description in Ezekiel's vision is not a UFO, okay? See, I have to keep bringing back to that because there are a lot of people who think along these lines. I have people in my family that talk about this. And that's what Ezekiel does here. He sees this and says, it's like this because it's something beyond his normal experience and beyond the experience of most of the Jews. And he says, so it looked like this. A theophany is a visible, tangible, human-like visitation of God to people. Like God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. Like the Lord appearing to Abraham by the trees of Mamre. Like when the patriarch Jacob wrestled physically with God. And when God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Those are all theophanies. Ways that God visits his people in a special physical divine form. Similarly, we see this kind of storm theophany from verse 4. In Israel's experience with God at the mountain of God in Sinai. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Go back a few hundred years, obviously. Genesis, Exodus, right there at the beginning. Exodus chapter 19, verses 9, and then 16 to 19. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. So that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Sound familiar? On the morning of the third day, verse 16, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud over the mountain and very loud and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. You get a lot of that kind of imagery in the books of Moses and Job and Psalms and 
Isaiah. So this is not unfamiliar imagery to the Jewish audience in Ezekiel's day. Again, this has nothing to do with UFOs, though. I have to keep saying that, as I said, because that's a pretty popular idea out there. This is stock imagery for a storm theophany of God. It's physical. It's tangible. It's a manifestation of the glorious presence of Yahweh among his people. Interestingly, at Mount Sinai's experience, God says this to Israel. We'll bump down to verse 31, 23, 31 in Exodus. He says, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from the desert to the Euphrates. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land, and you will drive, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. All that territory. Think about it. From the Red Sea, that's the Exodus, to the Mediterranean, that's Canaan, the promised land given to Abraham, and to the Euphrates, that's Babylon, back to where Abraham started, near Ur. All that territory is within the covenant promises of God to Israel. This was supposed to be their land. But generations after Solomon, God's people abandoned the covenants with Yahweh. And they aligned themselves with the gods of foreign territories. These foreign, foreign territories that was supposed to be under their feet. That's the very reason that Ezekiel and all of Judah were now in Babylon. And why Israel, the northern kingdom, doesn't exist anymore. You have to understand that for a Jew, the city and the temple were emblems, if you will, of their covenant salvation with God. Without them, they had no salvation. Now that the, their beloved city of Jerusalem and their temple are destroyed, and since they are now captives in Babylon, they're beginning to see just how far they've fallen away from the one true God. They did exactly what God said they would do. But that's when God gives a vision of himself now to the prophet. And he speaks. Ezekiel chapter 1 verses, 1, verses 5 to 14. Let me reread that for us. In the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleaming like burnished bronze. Under their wings on, and on four sides they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings. And the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of them had four uh, each, of the, each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the, right side, on the right side they had the face of a lion, on the left the face of an ox, and they also had the face of an eagle. Such were the faces. They each had two wings spreading upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each went straight out ahead, whether the spirit, wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures and it was bright and lightning flashed out of it. 
The creatures sped up back and forth like flashes of lightning. And when the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. And where the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. What we have here, again, not a UFO, but a glorious throne chariot being pulled through the skies by cherubim. Listen to the description of these unique characters. Ezekiel calls them four living creatures. These are cherubim. Cherubim, A cherub is not one of those cute, pudgy, winged creatures that you see in artwork or in cartoons. In fact, cherubim are not even angels. They are a unique class of heavenly being. They're throne guardians. Alice Wood, in her book of Wings and Wheels, notes that cherub in, in the Hebrew form is derived from the Akkadian kerebu, which means to pray. The Akkadians were actually the first ancient empire of Mesopotamia. That's their connection to Babylon here. She says that the cherubim them are a semi-divine figure stationed at the boundaries between the sacred and the profane, heaven and earth, to protect the holy from contamination. They're thrown guardians. Pick up a Bible dictionary and you'll see statues and wall carvings under cherubim like those of ancient Samaria or, and, and Assyria and palaces and temples and places like Nimrod and also Nineveh, which still exist today. Most of those cherubim that you see are winged, are four-legged creatures, winged four-legged creatures with human faces, sometimes with animal faces, and they're guarding a palace or a temple in statuary. And that's why everyone in Babylon, including now the Jews, would have been familiar with this Babylonian throne imagery. Because those images were ancient, even for their time. We're obviously not that familiar with this kind of imagery. So let's look at it again. And most people would just kind of read it and go, "Eh, whatever. But cherubim in biblical iconography have familiar human features and familiar creaturely features. Again, like the images from Othmar Kiel, the famous German scholar who, uh, who specializes in iconography from the ancient Near East. He claims that cherubim pulling a divine throne chariot is common imagery among all Mesopotamian ancient cultures. The living creatures are identified again in chapter 10, which we'll see later, weeks ahead, and his vision is repeated. They each had four wings with human hands under them. They had four faces, one human, one lion, one ox, and another of an eagle. Their legs are straight but they, they, like a human, but they had calf-like feet, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Spread out above the head of the living creatures was, that, was what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, And each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Funny how we read this kind of stuff, and we think it's just some kind of weird, isolated event or vision, but that's not the case. But moving past Mount Sinai and the storm theophanies to the tabernacle, 
of the Jews as they were worshiping God in the wilderness. And then to the temple of Solomon. Within part of that religious, those religious buildings was a sacred space called the most holy place. There was the holy place and then inside and through it was the most holy place. And in the most holy place, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, was the Ark of the Covenant. You've probably seen it in an Indiana Jones movie a couple of times. The Ark was considered the seat or the throne of God's presence among His people. And as long as the Ark was in its space, God was among His people. After the Exodus, Yahweh gave instructions to Moses on how to construct this Ark of the Covenant. Listen to what he says in Exodus 25. Have them make an ark of Achaia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make the gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, Two ring, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other, then make poles of Achaia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings and on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, a cover for the ark. Two and a half cubits long two, and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub at one end and a second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the, gold, with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Face or place the cover on top of the ark and put it in the put in the ark of the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. What's on top? Cherubim. Two on top of the ark, but there are also two giant cherubim on either on either side of the ark in the tabernacle, and in the temple. Their wings span from wall to wall together. So two cherubim plus two cherubim equals four cherubim, four living creatures. There were four cherubim making up the throne of Yahweh in the place where God's presence was, the seat of God among the people of Israel. This was the place where he, his localized presence came to dwell among them. Listen to what happened after Solomon's dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. Bump ahead to 2 Chronicles 7. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple because the Lord, uh, 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 temple of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good, His love endures forever. And now listen to Ezekiel again, verse 25. Then came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapsus lazuli. 
And high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal. It was full of fire, as if full of fire, and that from there down, it looked like fire and brilliant light surrounding him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the cl- on the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. See all the parallels? The people would have known what Ezekiel was describing. Again, not a UFO. This is the throne of God with God on it. And it's coming out of the north. It's surrounded by storm clouds and with fire, which is a direct challenge to the god of Hadad or Baal who apparently dwelt in the north, and to Marduk, who, whose throne resided in Babylon. A direct challenge to the gods of Babylon. And the whole point of Ezekiel's vision was to say to God's people that Yahweh is the God of gods, and that he is not limited by a holy city like Jerusalem, which was already destroyed, remember. And he is not bound by a temple like that, that was in Jerusalem, but is now destroyed. Even the ark is missing. Folks, Ezekiel is being told by God that God is not bound to the land of Israel, unlike the gods of Mesopotamia. Yahweh is the ever-present deity. He is the God of gods. He has no equal. And this vision also reminds its readers that Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth. He is the holy God, the God who surpasses the gods of Mesopotamia. And even though his own people have forsaken him and turned to these other gods, this vision tells us that he's declaring to his people through Ezekiel that he will stay faithful to them. Even if they are far away. He is never far away. Even when exiled. Even when their temple is destroyed and their holy city demolished. And did you hear the inclusion of the rainbow from Yahweh's covenant with Noah? Verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, it was the radiance, so was the radiance around him. Yahweh is the very embodiment of faithfulness. He radiates as the God who does not tolerate sin and idolatry, and he is the God who has command over all history to make sure that his promises come true. He is the God who alone has control over kings and nations. He is the God of gods and will never have a competitor. He alone is to be worshipped. Overwhelmed by this vision of God, high and exalted, Ezekiel sees that his glorious God is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. He is above all gods and should be worshipped as such. In humility, flat on your face, in worship. And notice Ezekiel's response. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. What is our response today to such a vision? Well, we could go away saying, well, that was weird. Or we could go away appreciating what was written in that vision as a vision for our own vision of God, high and exalted. What will we find as we move through this series is that God is not hesitant to discipline his people when they remain unfaithful. 
His patience towards us is long-suffering, but it is not infinite. He will not be ignored. That's why we need the vision of Ezekiel, so that we will learn not to ignore the Lord. Because, you know, the thing about Ezekiel's vision is that it took place in history, a history for the Jewish people, but the history was not over in, in, in Mesopotamia, in Babylon. God's people would come back home eventually. But not only that, God would continue his promise to David, not just about a temple, but about a new people with a new heart, made possible by a new Messiah, his one and only son, Emmanuel, the God who is with us. No more theophany. He came as a real man to live among us, to minister to us, to show us what a true king is like and what it is like to worship and serve this king. As you take communion today, make this an on-your-face kind of moment. In your heart of hearts, recognize your posture before the Lord your God, the God who does not tolerate idolatry in any form, but a God who will bring you back when you repent, and when you come back to him, he will receive you with open arms. So let us worship the Lord our God in this way.